Welcome to Valley Talk. I'm your host, Heather Stark, and uh, we cover a lot of political things. We cover a lot of current events and uh, things that are going on around town. But today we're going to cover something a little bit different. And I have to confess that one of my secret passions is language. Uh, Not necessarily foreign languages or anything, but grammar, the way we speak, the way we communicate, all of those things are important to me. And today we have a special guest, Peter Blinn. Peter, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks a lot. Well, you're welcome. Um, I'm very, very interested because uh, Peter has actually done something that I I admire greatly. Um, As a person who is not fluent in any second language, barely fluent in English, I suppose some people would argue, um, Peter has actually (laughs) taken it upon himself to plunge neck deep into not just one, two, or three foreign languages, but numerous foreign languages. Peter, tell us what you've done, what your accomplishment is. Well, here I have a book. The title is uh, The 12 Months of the Year in 850 Languages and Dialects. Okay, I'm going to interrupt you. That's 850. 850. I, you know, most of us, I suspect, unless we really think about, about it, don't even recognize that there are 800, that there are hundreds of <laughs> languages other than what we speak. Um, so how did you, you know... Tell me more about this. Book. Well, altogether, it's, it's believed that there are about 6,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're dying every week. Uh, basically, you know, a lot of these languages are spoken by just a few people. And uh, the book contains, I think, oh, several dozen extinct languages. And in some cases, I'm able to pinpoint the last native speaker of each of those. Um, this all started uh, with my website way back around 2000, uh, CuriousNotions.com. And I had a little article called the Minority Language Planetary Gazetteer. And so it had charts of the nine planets and each page was a different minority language. I think I maybe had half a dozen of those. Um, After a while, it outlived its usefulness and I took that down. And uh, more recently, I decided to display today's date in so many languages. So I'd say, started out with about 50 and every now and then I'd I'd read about another one and keep adding them and adding them. Uh, Eventually I realized I had this database and this was about 10 years in the making. I had this database that nobody else really has, a compilation that was getting well into the hundreds. I decided this would make a good book. Why not let people see all 12 months of each of these and not only that but read about the languages, the people who speak them and where they live and that sort of thing. Um, so it was a technical challenge. I had to write a whole bunch of computer code in order to organize these inside the, the book. Um, but I eventually decided 850 was a good place to stop. Uh, they were getting harder and harder. Um, as you probably know, not everybody in the world uses the Gregorian calendar. And frequently, I mean, they'll switch to it if they have to for business reasons or whatever. But it turns out many of these cultures do have terms for Gregorian months kind of stashed away in case anybody asks. And a lot of those came from, oh, like, like um, oh, people would visit them, uh, religious, what's the word? Uh, missionaries? Yeah, missionaries, yeah. yeah. Uh, in most cases, these, these, these countries were visited by missionaries starting in the 1500s all the way up through the 20th century. And so they would frequently establish a set of Gregorian months 
And then maybe years later, the people who speak these languages would have no idea about them and they'd be very surprised if they existed. Um, so that's what I put together. Um, I knew that I shouldn't try to beat somebody else at their own game, so I invented my own. And uh, I don't think there's another compilation like this. Mm -hmm. I think it was kind of valuable to concentrate all that information together in one spot. Uh, there's another website that, that I discovered uh, um, put together by a guy named R Mark Rosenfelder. And he tells you how to count from 10, from one to 10 in 5,000 languages. He started out, I think 500. And, and like me, it just kind of got out of control and it got bigger and bigger. And so that's an interesting database too. But mine is um, somewhat simpler, the 12 months, it gives a calendar. And that's basically how it got together. So basically, in English, we're doing you're doing January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December. Mm -hmm. And you've taken those words and translated them to all sorts of languages I've never heard of. How what what is Jurchen? Jurchen, J-U-R-C-H-E-N? Uh, Jurchen. Um, OK, that's that's in Asia. I mean, I can't look at it right now, but um, I think there's there's some relationship between that and. Uh, Manchu, and you might remember, you know, the Manchu Empire. Mm -hmm. um, and I also have Manchu, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, it's nearly extinct. Um, I'm at a Manchu. The, the Jurchen is nearly extinct. Uh, well, both. Uh, Manchu, really? Manchu is nearly Yeah. A lot of people have learned it from an academic standpoint, uh -huh. uh, but natively, it's very few people. Well, well, the, you know, I mean, obviously, we've all heard that Latin is a dead language, Latin is a dead language, and nobody teaches it anymore. Um, and yet so much of our English words are derived from Latin and Greek. And, you know, um, are any of the languages that you uh, figured out and, and used for your, your, your book? Also, because uh, English basically is just kind of sucks things from other languages all over the place. Um, yeah. We primarily think of, of you know, the, the Latin and the Greek and all that. But did you find any similarities in some of these others where they might have had an influence on English? Um, quite a bit. A lot of them borrow from each other. Sometimes it's hard to figure out where a certain word uh, started because it'll zigzag back and forth. Um, I, well, let's see, one example um, would be Gaulish. And Gaulish was a Celtic language that was spoken in the area that we now call France, uh, the pre-Roman France. And as some of you may know from your history, uh, Caesar went into, into Gaul and he fought particularly against a, a chieftain named Vercingetorix. And Vercingetorix managed to rout him over and over and over again. Finally, Caesar did um, vanquish him. Um, but that, that language is reasonably well attested. There's, there's evidence. And some of that survives into modern French um, because French originally came from Latin over time. But there are Gaulish words that they have borrowed. I understand several hundred. Um, one of them is Alouette, like the song. When you say, yeah. yeah, apparently that, that might come from Gaulish. Huh. Hard to know exactly, but um, again, several, several hundred they borrowed. So did the, and we're gonna talk about other regions and other, other languages, but the Jershan, I think, I'm, am I saying that correctly, Jershan? Yeah, I think so. Which is an Asian language. 
and you said they're nearly extinct. When you say nearly extinct, about how how many? I mean, we're talking a couple hundred. Are we talking a couple of families? You know, who who still? What what makes it nearly extinct? What's the number where we say nearly extinct? Okay, it looks like Jurchen uh, uh, is extinct. Uh, okay. Um, well, yeah, extinct is kind of a fuzzy term, and you have so to, many terms are. <laughs> yeah. Um, you have to define your terms at the beginning. And uh, fortunately in the book, I, I try to stay away from too much technical language. I use a little bit of it and then those are described in the glossary. And so I think the glossary has an entry like uh, natively extinct. And so natively extinct means there are no longer people learning it from infancy, okay? Um, but there could be a lot of people who've, who've picked it up as a second language later on, maybe academics um, or people just interested in reviving the language. Uh, a good example of that would be Manx, for example. Manx was spoken on Isle of Man. Uh, it, it was Celtic and it was closely related to um, Irish and Scottish Gaelic. Um, the last man who spoke it who was a native speaker, a guy named Ned Madderall, uh, he died, I believe, in the 1970s. But since then, um, there have been a lot of people who've revived it. They've, they've put together dictionaries and, and language books and so on, and they've been publishing little magazines in that language. And so something can be extinct and yet, in a way, not extinct. Um, I think probably the most complete example would be uh, the language that was spoken by the Indus Valley civilization called Harappan. And that is extinct, but so extinct that we have no information about it uh, at all, or very, very little. Well, how do you know it's there if you've... If uh, okay, we found a whole bunch of writings, um, different kinds of characters carved into stone. Uh, and so far, nobody has been able to decipher them, really. And that, that's something that they've been working on for generations and generations. Um, and so that's the other extreme. And in some cases, um, a language that's extinct like Hebrew uh, was revived completely and turned into a modern version. And that was a guy named uh, Eliezer ben Yehuda, and he was uh, a Yiddish speaker, but he was also obviously a Hebrew scholar and he worked, that was his lifetime um, devotion. He worked and worked and did a lot of research and completely revived Hebrew so that it was a modern language and now they speak it in Israel. When was that? Is that like after World War II or before World War II? Uh, uh, before World War II, I'm trying to think of uh, photographs I've seen of him. It looks like uh, late 19th century, maybe, but he might have lived into the 20th. I'd have to look that up. Okay. Um, uh, what? What? You didn't come prepared for this interview? Come on. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I, I, I had. I expected so much more of you. Of anything, so. <laughs> And my advantage is it's on the screen, so it's searchable rather than having a physical <laughs> yeah. copy, so I can look up a keyword. Yeah. Um, but I think that's the philosophy now, having uh, dabbled in education quite a bit. Um, you know, young people seem to think, why do I have to retain anything? It's all right here. And it, it doesn't cross their minds that maybe someday you won't have that power source or that, you know, mm -hmm. um, every, everything is possible with a cell phone today. A lot so, of Greek philosophers were unhappy with the spread of literacy. And so oh, really? they thought, okay, from now on, people won't have to memorize anything. And uh, that's true uh, because before people were able to read, they were able to memorize literally thousands of lines of poetry. 
Okay, so they could recite it to each other from one generation to the next. We can't do that anymore, Um, or most of us. All right. You know, my the the that brings me to a question about um, um, pre-literacy. Not all of these languages that you discovered or that you you found are written languages, are they? Kyle, that's quite correct. Um, The ones I was able to find and express um, typically would show up in IPA. That's the International Phonetic Alphabet. And in those cases, that was when somebody went over there, maybe spent several seasons, whatever, and and worked with the natives to learn the language, put together a dictionary. The International Phonetic Alphabet is a set of characters that attempt to represent every possible sound in human speech. Wow. And as you can imagine, it's something that gradually had to grow over time. Um, and it's hard to define how many sounds there are. If you ask people, they'll give you a number anywhere between 200 and 500 sounds. Okay, but each language has a little overlap and uses some of those. Um, well, I want to talk a little bit more about the sounds and pronunciations later. But first, sure. I want to keep talking about, you know, this, there are so many languages that, that you've used that I never had any any clue even existed. So the Jolafani, funny? Well, let's take a look here. J-O-L-A-F-O-N-Y-I? J-O-L-L. J-O-L-A-F-O-N-Y-I. He said it's a... Um, Okay, yeah. Oh, oh, there's a hyphen there. Okay. That's what slowed me down a bit. Uh, the Niger-Congo family is absolutely huge. It's one of the largest language families along with Indo-European. And it covers mostly like Central Africa. Um, so this is one of them. And I mentioned it's uh, spoken in Senegal and Gambia. And there was an Oscar-nominated film, uh, Binta and the Great Idea, uh, that was made in collaboration with UNICEF, and that's in French and Jolafoni. Oh, really? Um, and you'll notice, um, of course, your readers can't see this, but if you look at the entries, you'll see some strange looking letters. Yeah. And that gets to another subject in the book, and how do you express sounds that the Roman alphabet can't handle? Yeah. <laughs> so that's how they solve that problem. Yeah. So you, you said that there were quite a few technical challenges with this, with yeah. things such as how do you reproduce a letter that doesn't exist for us? That's true. Um, and I had writing systems that were in some cases unique to a language. So I had to create artwork in Photoshop and shrink it way down and you know, get it all to match, that kind of thing. So instead of typing, instead of like typing in some of these words, you had right. to like literally create an image of the word and then import that? That's exactly it. Yeah. And that's why I had to come up with a special method to do this. Yeah. And I compose it actually as a web page. If you imagine like an 800 foot long web page that you can't imagine scrolling all the way down. Um, that's what I did. And that way I could display everything. And one challenge is a lot of these languages use all kinds of accent marks um, more than you could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. And if left to their own devices, they'll crash into each other, they'll crash into the letters and so on. So if you make a web page, you have the luxury of micromanaging the positions of all these and moving them, you know, two pixels this way and a couple of pixels up and so on so that everything reads clearly. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. And I then saved it out as a paginated um, PDF file. Mm-hmm. Your background, your career uh, prepared you well for doing that kind of thing, doesn't it? How, do, how, what, what was your, what is your field in, in life here, your, your occupation? Well, it's, it's pretty eclectic. Um, 
I grew up in a small town, uh, very much like Duval, in fact, Greenville, Michigan, 8,000 people. Um, they have a Danish festival there every year. Um, and I was always interested in, oh, let's see, languages. I was crazy about Egyptology and also anything having to do with astronomy. And so those were my, my main three obsessions when I was growing up. Um, when I graduated from the University of Michigan, I came out to California and I was hoping I could get involved with anything having to do with outer space. And I stopped off in Arizona and I, I volunteered for the L5 Society. And this was the late seventies. The L5 Society was a grassroots organization. I think we had about 3000 people at a maximum, put out a newsletter every, every month. And we were basically um, promoting the idea of building colonies in space and building solar power satellites in orbit that would beam electricity down to us, that sort of thing. So I got out to uh, California and sold encyclopedias door to door and worked at a restaurant. And eventually um, I heard that they were working on Star Trek, the motion picture, and I had a contact and somehow I got in there and I got in as a production artist because I had been peddling my, my art portfolio around. And so that was my first project. So for 20 years, I worked on special effects animation. Uh, Star Trek the motion picture was the first one. And weirdly enough, many of them had to do with space because the next one was Buck Rogers, the TV series, which was a spinoff from the movie. And while we were there, we did some Battlestar Galactica. And, uh, and then I moved on to Filmation. They were doing something called Jason of Star Command. And that was, I remember that, yeah. Okay, well, that was, you know, the Saturday morning kid vid era. And this was live action, unlike most of those. Of course, Filmation also did animation in a different building. But, um, and so I built spaceships for that. We would raid, I'd raid model stores and get all kinds of pieces that we could put together, uh, that kind of thing. And so, strangely enough, with Hollywood, of course, every project is, has a, has an endpoint. Okay. There's a lot of instability. If you work on a movie, eventually the movie is over and everybody goes home. Same thing with a television show. Um, so much of my work uh, was done with special effects facilities that were smaller companies that would do, oh, individual effects for TV shows um, and advertisements for clients, uh, advertising various types of products. And so that formed um, most of what we were doing, most of what I was doing. And I was terribly interested in creating shapes with mathematics. Now, math was my worst subject in high school. Um, I just barely squeaked through. But somehow, when it came to taking numbers and writing equations that make shapes, I really took, got into that. And that was... <laughs> Motivation pretty, is everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that was my value in Hollywood because it, it allowed me to create like animation curves over time. Like if you're moving something from the left to the right, mm -hmm. you want to know, is it going slower and faster and, you know, slower, that kind of thing. Um, and so... For a while in Hollywood, my specialty was um, streaking three-dimensional artwork in space with an open shutter on a camera. And so you like you like you might write uh, your name in spark with a sparkler at night. You're opening up the shutter and then you have artwork that has colored filters over it and you move the table while the shutter is open and you move the camera up and down and you're creating these curvy shapes as if they're floating in front of you. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of my big specialties. That sounds very psychedelic. Uh, and like the book, it involved uh, well, a lot of 
logical thinking, mathematical problem solving, uh, that sort of thing. And well, and so that brings me back to my point, which is that gave you the skill to um, create these characters and uh, um, what do you call them? The letters, I guess, and the, and everything that went along with this project. Sure. Peter, we're going to have to take a little break. Okay. Uh, but when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about actual pronunciations and whether people actually speak these words and whether you learned anything about that. So we're going to address that when we come back. You're uh -huh. listening to Valley Talk. I'm Heather Stark. And with me is my guest, Peter Blinn. And uh, we're having a fun time talking about languages. So join us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Valley 104.9, your station for Valley Talk and information. Join us for Northwest Phenomenon Sunday nights at 7 p.m. right here on Valley 104.9 as we cover topics from paranormal activity, conspiracy theories, and more. If you have a story you would like to share, email me, mario at northwestphenomenon.com. We'll see you Sunday nights at 7 p.m. right here on Valley 104.9. Northwest Phenomenon. Tune in on Saturday evenings when Valley 104.9 is all about the oldies. Things get going at 5.30 p.m. with Forgotten Hits of the 60s, where host Steve Arthur spins up obscure singles and one-hit wonders. Then from 6 to 9, it's the Saturday Night Oldies Show with the Valley's own Terry Spring. Terry busts out his huge collection of 45s from the 50s, 60s, and 70s and spins them every week. It's a double dose of the oldies every Saturday starting at 5.30 p.m. Remember to join us at 1 p.m. on Sunday for Animal Radio. Animal Radio is America's most listened to pet show. The nearly two-hour celebration of our pets is hosted by veterinaire talent Hal Abrams and Judy Francis. So tune in 1 p.m. Sunday, Animal Radio. Immerse yourself in the worlds of community media, sound, podcasting, and audio on Radio Survivor. Airing on Wednesday nights from 6 to 7 p.m. here on Valley 104.9 FM. Welcome back to Valley Talk. I'm Heather Stark with you, your host, and Peter Blinn is my guest. Peter has just accomplished uh, an amazing task, I think. He wrote a book. Well, Peter, you explain it. You wrote a book that's called, what's the title? The 12 months of the year in 850 languages and dialects. Yeah, there you go. What's the difference between a language and a dialect? I figured that would come up. Um, and I'm hedging by putting that in the title because a lot of times people will argue over what is a real language and what is a dialect. Um, in many cases, it's quite clear. In other cases, it's kind of fuzzy and people sometimes will, half of them will get angry with you if you call it one thing, the other half will get angry if you call it the other. Um, but the way they see it, the way linguists look at it, um, ideally and theoretically, if, if a language diverges, you have people who speak a certain language and then some of them move somewhere else into some other area where they're somewhat isolated. After a couple of generations, their language will, will change gradually. And so you have all these branches out of, a, out of a parent language. And when they get to the point where they're not interintelligible, in other words, if you speak dialect A of, of a language and your 
talking to people who speak dialect B and they're not interintelligible, they're considered to be separate languages. Okay. And but, when you say interintelligible, that means if I'm talking to you and you're talking to me and we're both in the different dialects, but we don't understand what each other is saying, we can't figure it out. That's... Yeah, that's pretty much it. Okay. And that also is a fuzzy issue because it kind of depends on uh, the speaker's background. Mm-hmm. I mean, do they have relatives who you know live in that other area and so on? And, and well, one example is um, Finnish and Estonian. And Finnish and Estonian, with some practice are interintelligible with each other. Um, and during the Soviet era, in fact, a lot of people in, um, in Estonia were, were listening in on Finnish television uh, to get you know, non-Soviet news. Um, actually, I, you know, one of the things that strikes me as, as a, a, a clearly inadequate, you know, different language learner, um, I, I have traveled in many countries and very rarely um, is communication impossible. Usually I'm finding enough similarities in words. Uh, uh, it, it, I usually don't have a whole lot of trouble communicating um, mm-hmm. because of some similarities and then that you throw in the gestures and, you know, all that kind of stuff is are all of these words, if you peel away enough layers, are all of these languages somewhat uh, interintelligible? Well, a lot of that has to do with uh, borrowing, which happens after the fact. And so there's a difference between um, languages having a word in common, because if you go back in history, it branched out from the same ancestor. But what you run into nowadays is that languages are borrowing from each other. And especially a lot of languages throughout the world are borrowing from English very, very heavily. Yeah. Uh, and that helps a lot. And, and the French, I re- remember a few years ago, uh, maybe quite a few years ago at this point, but the French, I mean, they were actually very adamant that we ha- they had to start guarding against those that, that uh, pollution of their language. Right. You know? uh, do you re- recall what I'm talking about? I mean, they actually had yeah. law, federal laws and everything else, but uh, they still use the word teenager, okay? <laughs> well, most languages have a language institute that polices the language, okay? And French is a very good example of that. But we're talking about most major languages. English, though, does not. No, we'll take and, any old phrase. <laughs> yeah. We'll incorporate it at random. <laughs> well, for hundreds of years, they've tried, okay? But apparently English speakers were so spread out around the world and so diverse that nobody could really come up with a common standard mm-hmm. you know, that they could enforce. Now there are individual standards. There's, there's Indian English, um, you know, which actually is official. And there's Philippine English, for example, mm-hmm. um, Australian and British English is different from American English. Oh and, yes. And since we have no language um, institute, we kind of depend on major newspapers to set the tone um whoa that's scary (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but yeah that's that's interesting because sometimes you know traveling in england or australia or new zealand you would swear they're speaking a totally different language oh certainly and and yet it is english um but it's so different um you know I, i got in trouble in new zealand when i was trying to order order something from a deli and uh the lady said well would you like friendship 
And I went, Freyship? I don't know what a Freyship is. And she said, oh, you have Freyship in, in United States. And I went, no, I don't, I don't think so. And she pulls out this, this recipe book and it's fresh herbs. Oh, okay. Freyships. Uh-huh. You know, Freyships. <laughs> who, who would know that, you know? Um, oh, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. So I, I often laughed about my Freyships that I grow out on my deck now. Um, but uh, when people, how many of the 850 languages you sought out and used in your book are spoken, still spoken, and how many of them are now more archival? Um, I counted a little while ago, I came up with a number around 70 or 80 that are considered to be extinct in one sense or another. Oh, well, that's not as many as I would have thought. Yeah. Um, and that would include things like Cornish, which was spoken in Cornwall. Oh, um, corn! Oh, Cornish is extinct. Oh, and, well, <laughs> I can count to ten in Cornish. Can you and, do it? Uh, do it. Oh, on and do three password pimp quick Sith eighth now dick, and five is pimp p y m p, and you'll you'll notice in Welsh it's pump p u m p. So you can already see the the family relationship yeah. there. Well, um, Welsh is a very difficult language I, to pronounce, I think, because yeah. they make their, and there are several languages I know that do this, but they make vocal sounds that we don't make. Yeah. They make clicks and clicks and, you know, I, <laughs> there's all sorts of ways to pronounce things and make sounds that, that we don't realize if all we speak is English. Oh, that's you, something I discovered. Yeah. It's astonishing. Yeah. Um, if you're talking about Welsh, uh, probably one of their trademark sounds is the double L. Yeah. And you'll see that in, in names like Llewellyn and Lloyd. Um, that's a lateralized sibilant, uh, linguists call it. In other words, you're pronouncing an S, but you're letting the air come out the side of your tongue instead of the front. So it's sa, a sa. So Lloyd is soid, and Llewellyn is suessin. Oh, wow. And okay, Welsh. And you, called that, you called that a sibilant? What did you call that? A lateralized sibilant. I like that phrase. Well, the word sibilant means any like S hissing type sound. Okay. Yeah. I was and lateralized means sideways. So you're doing it out of the sides of your tongue. That's great. Huh. And Welsh is interesting because it also has unvoiced M's and N's. When and, you say unvoiced, you mean those, what we used to call silent letters? Uh, no. Um, no. Voice versus unvoiced um, is a consonant quality like oh let's see an example would be easier like b versus p okay they're both articulated exactly the same way but b is voiced because your vocal cords are operating and p is not give me same an example method. say an example uh bet versus pet and also k k and g cat um gat <laughs> which isn't a oh. word yeah and so most of the most of the consonants we have had two versions, voice and unvoiced. Huh. So, so normally M and N, they're called nasals because they you're closing your mouth entirely and doing it out of your nose. Mm -hmm. um, and Welsh has some unvoiced M's and N's. Uh, other languages do also. Mm -hmm. And so the joke is, if you're speaking to somebody in Welsh, you have to be careful with your double L. S, you, you don't want to spray your listener. And if you're pronouncing your unvoiced M's and N's, you want to be careful not to blow a nostril bubble. 
Oh, oh. Okay. Well, if you're doing that lateralized sibilant, you only have to worry about you don't have to worry about the person spraying the person in front of you, just the people on either side. Is that? Yeah. Well, that's a popular sound, especially in, in uh, indigenous languages yeah. and even Salish out here. What's the language? What's the language that has the clicking? The uh, probably most famously the Khoisan languages uh, in southern Africa. And I think I have a couple of them. Um, um, one of them used to be called Hottentot. Oh, yeah. It's now called, uh, I forget, but because there are a couple of them. Um, and you'll find this um, with also some other languages in Africa that aren't related to that family. And that's from borrowing, it's believed to be. So they'll have some click sounds. Wow. Amazing uh, sounds that a, a human mouth can actually produce. Oh, you, yeah. You also um, um, did a, a few Native American languages. Can it, were, were those easier or harder to find? Um, it varied. Um, I actually did quite a few. Um, I think maybe, you know, something like a quarter of them, uh, possibly. A lot of those came from uh, souvenir calendars that I would find. And sometimes I would do a Google image search for calendars and, oh, here we go. Here's a set of 12 months that somebody who's sponsoring and trying to encourage a certain Native American language has printed out. Um, and again, a lot of these things were compiled by missionaries. Um, so the, the, the information exists and certainly more so nowadays because people are much more sensitive uh, to their original cultures and trying to revive them and keep them from fading away. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the area of Washington state, um, there's, there's a, a language family called Salishan, mm -hmm. and that has a lot of branches off of it, uh, which people refer to as the Salish languages. I have a dozen of those in the book and I chose them carefully. They look like they're very distinct from one another. And most of them are pretty much not interintelligible. So it's just amazing. Um, yeah, and and there are a lot of groups uh, uh, for different languages where they're trying to preserve those languages and at least get recordings of the languages before the last native speakers of of them are are gone. Um, yeah. Did you rely on any of that research as you were doing your your book? Uh, frequently, yeah, um, and a lot of times uh, that was. A good thing because that was the only thing that was keeping a lot of these from fading away. Uh, there was a language called IAC, which was spoken in Alaska, and it eventually came down to two very elderly sisters. And I grew up reading the Book of World Records; uh, <laughs> that was one of my favorites. And so they would have things. You are like, a very strange boy, Peter. Okay. Yeah, they would have things like you know the, the world's rarest language, and I remember that one being mentioned. Yeah. Uh, and eventually, I think her name was Mary Jones. Uh, she was the last and she died. So she was the last native speaker. But fortunately, um, a linguist from MIT had spent a lot of time over there and he compiled a dictionary. And a linguist from France actually came over and he became fluent in, in IAC. Oh. And so thanks to some of these people who are really working hard uh, to do it, um, a lot of these languages haven't faded away completely. Yeah. I'm picturing the resume from the guy in France, you know, uh, special skills, fluent in IAC. And yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I wonder how useful that is in France. Um, <laughs> uh, 
I think I got this from your website, but talking about pronunciation, you've got, and you talked about, you know, the lateralized sibilant and things like that. But what about those silent letters? I know in English a lot, I, I work with a lot of young people uh, with language arts and, and they often have a really hard time with those silent letters. Yeah. Um, and the one that I have a hard time with is the silent L like in golf. Uh-huh. And and most people, of course, just say golf, you know, but technically that's a silent L, is it not? And there are I, I have a hard time with that one. I always you know, want to throw that L in there. But let's talk a little bit about silent letters. I think you wrote a thing called silent letter interlopers. Talk about those silent letters, especially in English. Yeah, uh, that was uh, actually my Facebook section. Um, a lot of silent letters come from an older version of the word where the letters were originally pronounced. And so like we have night, K-N-I-G-H-T. And going back to Middle English and Old English, it was more like knicht. And there were a lot of these K-N words. They thought nothing of it. That was how they were pronounced. And over time, the speech will sometimes evolve a lot faster than the spelling. And spelling is a habit that's very hard to break. So that's where a lot of these silent letters come from. Um, but there are other cases where the silent letters were added later on deliberately by academics. <laughs> uh, Those ivory tower people. <laughs> mostly, well, during the 15, from the 1500s on into the 19th century. And what's the motivation for adding silent letters? Um, hard to say, but a lot of these people... Um, back when um, linguistics and etymology were fairly new sciences, would think that they a certain word evolved from a certain Latin root, and they noticed, for example, debt, D-E-B-T. They thought, well, that comes from debit, D-E-B-I-T. So let's remind everybody, and let's put the B in there so we spell it D-E-B-T, okay? Because for generations, it was just spelled D-E-T. Hmm. And that applies to quite a few words. And so I think the technical term I learned was intrusive letters. Um. Oh, I like that. Um, I think that what was four, 400 and some years ago uh, that I can't remember his name, invented the first dictionary. And before that spelling was just kind of a catch as catch can. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, um, yeah. There uh, were standards that uh, people tried to put together. There was something called the chancery standard uh, which um, was, um, well, enforced during the, the late Middle Ages. Um, but you'll find, uh, especially in Old English, a lot of the writers would basically spell words the way they felt like spelling them. Mm -hmm. um, kind of like kids today. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and there's a difficulty with that because you might speak a slightly different dialect. You might, you might be from the South and you'll pronounce the word a certain way. Mm -hmm. For example, in some parts of the U.S., the word penny the word pen and pin are pronounced the same way. Yes. They'll say penny. Yeah. Well, I grew, and I, I grew up in um, Ohio, uh, which is close to Tennessee. But in Ohio and in Tennessee, it's usually pronounced Tennessee with uh -huh. an I sound, not an E. And it always cracks me up when I hear all these people talking about Tennessee. And, and I do it, too, because I think, well, if you really knew anything about Tennessee, you'd know it's Tennessee. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> and my father, um, who was an older man, um, he, again, in Ohio, born in Michigan, raised in Ohio, farmer kind of guy. But he always pronounced the state Iowa. It wasn't Iowa. It was Iowa. 
So, you know, those regional dialects, did you have any problems with regional dialects when you were saying uh. <laughs> the same language, but different, different uh, uh, ways that it, uh, the, the regions did it? I would stick with the way they were published okay. and basically take their word for it. And in some cases, of course, a lot of these pronunciations would diverge. And as I said earlier, if, it, if people are isolated and it happens over a long period of time, it does become a dialect and then it does become a separate language. Mm -hmm. And one example I had with that was a language called Homshetsi. It's also called Hamshen, H-A-M-S-H-E-N. And is that an Asian language? Uh, kind of, uh, Middle Eastern, uh, although that's also from the Indo-European family, mm -hmm. which English comes from. Um, well, originally these were Armenians who left the area of Armenia uh, many generations ago, and they resettled in Turkey. And over time, their Armenian gradually changed, new environment, they have new things to describe, and uh, eventually became a separate language called Homshetsi or Hamshin. And I found a list of the months, and they were all Romanized, they were all turned into our alphabet so that we could read them. But I thought it'd be more authentic if we could show them in the original Armenian characters. Uh, which is supposedly how Homshetsi is written, although rarely, <laughs> but if ever, that's how they put it down. Um, so I got a hold of a translation uh, company. First, I thought I might be able to do it myself. Um, I checked out the Armenian alphabet. And I could see there were all kinds of ambiguities and fuzzy areas and overlaps. And I could see I would be in way over my head if I tried to transliterate that into uh, proper Armenian characters. So I, I hired a translation company to do that for me. Mm -hmm. And that way I was able to show the month name in both Romanized and also the Armenian characters. You did that with, um, and again, I'm probably going to butcher the sound, the pronunciation here, the Ware Ware? Ware Ware. Um, I don't even have to look that up. Uh, that's spoken in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And they had um, their own native uh, writing system called Wabayan. And this was this existed somewhat before the missionaries first came. And so um, this is fairly well understood. Nowadays, uh, a modern reader would have trouble unless they had studied it specifically. Mm -hmm. But in many of those cases, I tried to find the Babayan uh, versions to be more authentic. Well, and I noticed with the Ware Ware, uh, I mean, there are, I don't know whether this is universal, but I know. Uh, 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 Chinese and Japanese uh, call them kanjis, uh, the characters. They're not, they're not letters as we recognize them. They're uh, uh, graphic depictions. They're, how, how, do you, how do you explain that? Right, well, um, Japanese has kind of a mixture. Um, basically, there's sort of a, a hierarchy of alphabets, writing mm -hmm. systems. And at the very bottom, not that there's anything wrong with them, but, but basically in the simplest form, um, would be something like Hebrew and Arabic. And those are called abjads because they don't include vowels. Okay, these are just characters that represent um, consonants. And it's understood that if you knew the language when you're reading these things, you know what the proper vowels are in between all these consonants. Um, uh, they often hint at vowels. Okay, I, I taught myself the Arabic and Hebrew uh, writing systems and Sometimes you can get, tell there's an, an ooh sound in there or an ah, pretty much all consonants. Mm -hmm. Well, the Greeks had the idea, let's represent vowels too as a character. 
And so they introduce those and that's called an alphabet. So an alphabet is a character that shows, set of characters that shows both um, vowels and consonants. And the next step up is something called an abugida. Um, and in fact, that's a very recent term. I think it was coined only in the 1990s. But uh, you'll see these in India, most of the Indian languages um, and Ethiopia, a lot of these and, and others. And that's where you have a consonant sim, uh, symbol with a default following vowel, typically ah. So you'll have an entire chart of ka, ba, ta, and so on. And then if you have want a different vowel, you add a little diacritic of some sort, or maybe change the shape of the character a little bit. So, okay, well, we're getting a little technical here, so I hope we haven't <laughs> lost anybody, but I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I'm Heather Stark. You're listening to Valley Talk with our guest, Peter Blinn. We're talking about all sorts of languages. We'll be right back. You're listening to Valley 104.9, your station for Northwest Eclectic Music. Remember to take the journey on Sunday nights at 10 p.m. to midnight with Musical Star Streams, hosted by Forrest. Each week brings a new two-hour episode of Exotic Electronica. It follows radio masterpieces, which airs at 9 p.m. on Valley 104.9, your community station. And thanks for listening to Valley 104.9. Tune in on Saturday evenings when Valley 104.9 is all about the oldies. Things get going at 5.30 p.m. with Forgotten Hits of the 60s, where host Steve Arthur spins up obscure singles and one-hit wonders. Then from 6 to 9, it's the Saturday Night Oldies Show with the Valley's own Terry Spring. Terry busts out his huge collection of 45s from the 50s, 60s, and 70s and spins them every week. It's a double dose of the oldies every Saturday starting at 5.30 p.m. Join us for Northwest Phenomenon Sunday nights at 7 p.m. right here on Valley 104.9 as we cover topics from paranormal activity, conspiracy theories, and more. If you have a story you would like to share, email me, mario at northwestphenomenon.com. We'll see you Sunday nights at 7 p.m. right here on Valley 104.9. Northwest Phenomenon. I'm Chris Heim, inviting you to join me in the Global Village for the best in music from all around the globe. We highlight new releases, rare and classic recordings, birthdays, holidays, and a host of features, specials, and unique concert performances, all drawing on styles and influences from many different corners of the world. Great sounds from all around the globe in the Global Village, Thursday nights from 7 till 9, here on Valley 104.9 FM, your station for Northwest Eclectic Music. Welcome back to Valley Talk. Peter Blinn. You have written an amazing book, and uh, we've been talking about that. I'm Heather Stark, and you're listening to Valley Talk. What we're talking about with this in this segment is a book that Peter wrote where he took 850 different languages and basically wrote the months of the year uh, on the Gregorian calendar in all of these languages. And some of the languages, I think you said about 60 or 80 were extinct or no longer spoken. Yeah. Um, and you, you do a lot with uh, the uh, Native American languages. What I like about what you did in the book is you all, you put a little something about it. Not only do you say, well, this is a 
language uh, from this geographic area and that it's you also mentioned whether it's spoken by about how many I'm looking at the Salish coastal Indian language and it's you have it's uh, a, Salish is a language from the Salishan family spoken by approximately 200 on the east coast of Vancouver Island. Uh, no, that's, that's one of the dialects, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, one of the dialects there. Um, but then in your list, you you put the, the months, um, you know, one through 12, and you write it in either the characters or the uh, alphabet, but then you also put it, what it means. So for example, for month number one, you I won't even attempt to pronounce it, but for the Salish, you put, it means shining ice. How poetic is that? Um, you know, did you have a hard time finding those? Uh, how, how come some languages have literal translations and some of them don't? Um, yeah, um, sometimes it wasn't easy. Other times they're very glad to show you those things in the documentation. Um, well, a lot of times um, people, words in a language, they'll become pretty old and over generations, people use a word that represents a month, but they'll forget after several generations where it actually came from. Mm -hmm. And so that's one case. And sometimes you can, if you dig far enough, you can find out something about that and put that in the book. Okay. Uh, a lot of these native languages, uh, again, sometimes it's extra digging. Um, in some cases, if I was lucky to find a dictionary, I could look up some of these words. Mm -hmm. and find out that way um, but it also tells you about the people who speak it and and how they mark their year and what things are important to them how long did it take you to do this book the database itself uh gradually took me about 10 years to accumulate mm -hmm. once i decided to do the book it was about oh i think something like eight months um and uh one thing that uh, happened i one of my boss's boss at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, wrote a book about his experiences there. And he'd, he'd been at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory since the, oh, the middle to late 60s. So obviously he had some stories to tell. Mm -hmm. um, and I looked at the front of it and I saw the publisher that he used. Um, and I investigated that publisher. I decided, well, that might be awfully expensive because I could probably produce all my body copy myself. Uh, writing computer code and using Photoshop, I can design the cover. And so that's what I did. And I found another publisher where you can just, you know, just feed those over. Basically you upload your body copy and your cover and they can print it. Um, what, what, what's in the future for you? What's next? Are you going to build on this or are you going to go um, 180 and do something totally different? What, what are you uh, going to do next? I'd like to build on it. I'm, I'm looking at uh, natural language processing. I'm looking at e-learning um, mm -hmm. to see, you know, how, what I might be able to contribute. I think I have some unusual uh, abilities and experiences to bring into those fields. Clearly. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and natural language processing is uh, quite an important field. Uh, you might have had the, had the experience of talking on the phone to like technical support or whatever. And then you start to realize, I think I'm talking to a computer here mm -hmm. yeah. and you'll notice they can kind of understand you, but not entirely. They're listening for certain keywords. And so they'll often get off on the wrong track. Mm -hmm. And so you'll keep, you know, hitting zero, 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 maybe to you know, get away from them. Mm -hmm. And so that's the science of having um, um, 
computers. You, you know, you you do the the zero zero zero. I just start screaming. I want a human being. I want a human uh, being. I want a human <laughs> being. And eventually they'll go. I'm not understanding you. Let me get you to a human being. Thank I you. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so that works too. You can keep punching zero zero zero, or you can do my my methodology of just screaming. I want a human being. <laughs> well, a lot of that has to do with also understanding sound, the physics of sound, uh, when you're creating the software and. You know, like what makes an S sound and an F and F sound like fireman different and these kinds of things. And, you know, what do vowels look like? What do their waveforms look like? And how can you detect all these things? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so backing up a little bit, why did you do this book? Uh, well, curiosity mainly. And I wanted to... You might say the calendar is something of a MacGuffin. Um, Alfred Hitchcock used that term a lot uh, when he talks about his movies. The MacGuffin is um, the little, the idea or the, the artifact that the characters at the beginning are, are trying to find or trying to reach and that's established in the first act. Mm -hmm. So for example, the Maltese Falcon, that movie, it's, it's this little figurine. And for North by Northwest, uh, specifically by Hitchcock, it's a little piece of microfilm that has some ultra secret information that the government you know doesn't want it to leak out mm. and so the MacGuffin kind of forms the nucleus of the plot but doesn't necessarily end up being all that important but it's, it's the fun things that go on around it mm -hmm. okay and so giving a list of the months um, gives you a wonderful excuse to find out about these cultures and you know these this language became extinct and why did it? Well, in, in one case like Bayathuk, it was because the Europeans came over and outcompeted the, the Bayathuk Indians for their food sources mm -hmm. um, and other things like that. Sometimes diseases uh, killed off most of the speakers. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought this would be wonderful and I don't see anything else like this in the world. And I've looked around and I thought, well, this could be unique. And it might be a good record to establish because that way it'll last forever. Because mm -hmm. if any of the sources of this information kind of fade away somehow, at least this will always be there. So how do you envision this book? Who's going to be buying this book? How do you envision that they will use the book? Well, I imagine myself um, in elementary and junior high, I would have killed to get a book like this. Um, in fact, all the way back, I believe I was maybe seven years old, uh, I discovered a book in the elementary school library, Know Your Russian Alphabet. Okay, and I thought, wow, this sounds interesting. And, and it was a wonder, it was a picture book. And so each letter would have a city or a geographical feature that starts with that letter. And then they have a little story, you know, about that town. So it would go all the way through the alphabet. Um, and so was, a lot of people are curious. And I discovered when I was running test ads that I was getting heavy responses from the age group, like 13, 13 was lowest you could specify, like 13 to 18. And then it kind of went down after that. And then it would go up later when people got older. So there's a special curiosity in those age groups. Um, so you see that, do you see this as having an academic use though? Uh, possibly. Um, I don't pretend to be a credential linguist. So I was very careful in this book not to get it over my head. And I'm certainly not breaking any new ground. It's meant to be readable by everybody. Mm -hmm. And I would think especially libraries would like this for their reference section. Because mm -hmm. uh, I find 
I'm often quite disappointed sometimes when I go to a library, I'll go right to their language section. And sometimes I'm kind of disappointed. I think they ought to have a little more variety. Mm -hmm. And uh, it makes people think, you know, when they have something like this in front of them, think, boy, dog salmon, cold weather. Oh, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think for me, I mean, looking at this, it's like it, it expands your thinking. I think that sometimes going about our daily lives or our daily school or whatever, um, we tend to rather shrink the world around us. When we see things like this, we realize how very large that world is and how, I mean, 850 languages, 6,000 languages, you know, I mean, yeah. I, that's eye-opening for a lot of people. So I, I see it as, you know, kind of a, a world expander, even if you're not particularly interested in specific languages. Just the idea that all of this exists, you know, and where did it come from and about the people that invented it. And, you know, I, I, I see it more from, a, a, I don't know, an aha kind of a, a standpoint, I think. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is you have talked a lot about using technology to put this together. Is there an online version uh, that, that people can go to? Uh, so far, no. Um, I've kept it as a physical version. And I, I kind of hesitated to put it in digital form because it looks like the kind of thing that people would just love to like copy and then make copies and send them to their friends and then their friends would send them to their friends. Mm -hmm. And so I would, I would, <laughs> I would lose out on that. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, that's kind of the world as we have, as we live in it though. Yeah. It's the kind of thing, you know, with the kinds of tidbits that, that look very copyable. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was, that was one reason. I think eventually I, you know, I will have it available that way, but I'd like to give it a chance first. Sure. Um, in looking at this and asking you about what's what's down the road for you, one of the things that I see is, you know, I mean, you could have innumerable uh, follow ups to this with different, you know, not just the date, but have one that, you know, words of love or, um, you know, things like that or, or words for family or, you know, I, right. it seems to me that this is just a, kind of a jumping off place of things that you can do with this. Peter, if somebody wants the book, where do you suggest they go? Well, right now, um, you can go to any of the normal uh, retailers like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and so on. You can go into their search field and type 850 languages. They'll usually find it. Or you could type my pen name, uh, Cookies Vumchor, K-U-K-I-S-V-O-O-M-C-H-O-R. Um, that would be maybe if you see it in print so you can cut and paste it. No, um, but you can find the book that way. I named myself after a Sami village in the Kola Peninsula of Russia uh, of that name. Um, okay. All right. You, you can get it more reasonably <laughs> through Blurb. Okay. Go to blurb.com okay. and you'll get it cheaper. Okay. Okay. <laughs> blurb.com, 850 yep. languages. Exactly. Peter Blinn, thank you so much for sharing with us about your book and uh, all of the, all of the work it took to do this. I really appreciate it. I wish you great success. Thank you for coming on the show and thank you for listening to Valley Talk. Local news, local info, Valley 104.9 FM. 
I'm Chris Heim, inviting you to join me in the Global Village for the best in music from all around the globe. We highlight new releases, rare and classic recordings, birthdays, holidays, and a host of features, specials, and unique concert performances, all drawing on styles and influences from many different corners of the world. Great sounds from all around the globe in the Global Village, Thursday nights from 7 till 9, here on Valley 104.9 FM, your station for Northwest Eclectic Music. Music.